Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm in the studio with Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Nathan. Pastor, it's good to have you back on the show after you've been away for one week. This evening, we'll be discussing government and the Christian's responsibility to government. And we are really looking forward to your interaction with us on this topic or any other questions that you may have. Government. To some people, it's their only hope for a brighter future. To others, it's the enemy of a constructive society. Some governments kill in the name of religion, while others do all that they can to kill religion itself. Is it man-made? Should we support it? How do we oppose it? Stay tuned as we use the Bible to answer these questions along with your questions here on That's Truth. Pastor Murphy, let's start from the beginning. Do we know when government actually started? Most Bible scholars uh, refer us to the book of Genesis chapter 9 when uh, Noah was given the authority um, to take life. He who kills man, by man he should be killed. That was essentially believed to be the beginning where human beings are now given the a right to execute capital punishment on anyone who had murdered somebody else. So this authority is being given to a group to execute judgment on a person that commits murder. Generally speaking, that is when it's believed that human government um, began uh, to be established in Genesis chapter 9. From a secular standpoint, are you familiar? Does does man claim that they created government? Uh, it's not surprising. Man claims he creates everything. He created the family. Uh, he even created man and uh, in his own image, basically. But that's the fa- fallacy uh, of these different disciplines. Uh, they're always looking at man to be the the ultimate. And, of course, we are today controlled by what is called secular humanism, which has no place for God, no place for creation. Everything has evolved. So any institution... Uh, social or political institution that started basically is attributed to man. Uh, but that is uh, quite frankly a bogus claim uh, because uh, there's no warrant for it. Uh, and when you take away the Bible, all you're left with is human opinion. So it's not surprising that man would claim that he created, uh, whether it be the family, the home, or, or government. But clearly in the scripture, um, God did designate the responsibility of a, a segment of humanity 
to execute capital uh, punishment on anyone that had actually murdered. And the reason for that given, by the way, is that man was made in the image of God. To destroy God's image is actually to attack God. So any attack on God, basically, there had to be some penalty in that regard. Before we go any further, Pastor, let's have a quick word of prayer, asking the Lord for wisdom as we proceed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to share what your word has to say on this topic and on other topics. And Lord, for each individual who is listening, I ask that you would encourage them through what is shared. May your word be taught clearly. May you give wisdom to Pastor Murphy. Allow him to recall information that he has studied for this evening and also information that he has studied over as many years of ministering. I ask that everything that is said and done would be for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Nathan, if I might, if I might point out as well, uh, if you follow the the, uh, the historical uh, trend of Genesis, it, first institution is the home. Okay. As the home develops and you have other families, etc., you need human government. So it's not surprising that you would have the home first, and then as a result of multiple families, then you have the need for human government. And of course, the sinful nature of man, which occurs in Genesis chapter 3, now requires a coercive government to keep man in line because because of his sinful nature, man tends to go astray. So that is why um, it comes in that order. Do you think that God had that planned all along, or as man degraded, as the families uh, became numerous enough that they needed that civil government set up, God took it to the next step. God knows everything, so God is never caught by surprise. Um, and I, I would uh, um, pontificate that he knew that man would fall, and he had already created a... Um, a, uh, a means of controlling man in his movement in the fall, and man would eventually go further and further away from God, become more and more corrupt, more and more violent. But he, the eventuality of man falling, God was aware of that, and he had already made provision. It's like Christ was slain for the foundation of the earth. He already foresaw that man would need a redeemer. So nothing, don't forget that God sees everything in the eternal present. There's no timeline with God present, uh, past, present, and future. He sees everything because he lives in eternal present. Pastor, obviously we use the Bible as our basis for this program and everything here on the Radio Lighthouse. From the Bible, what is the role of government? Uh, if you, um, there are three, two, three good passages that would help us to understand that particular role. One is um, found in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7 it sets out very clearly what government is about that's actually ordained of God it also gives you an idea of what government's responsibility what responsibilities are and then in Titus chapter 3 uh, verse 1 as well First Peter chapter 2 verse 13 and 17 and uh, uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 and 2 but fundamentally the role of government uh, from a scriptural point of view um, first of all is to restrain evil uh, government is given that, that responsibility to to um, hold down the evil of man and because it wants law and order and peace 
Uh, that is one of the main roles of government, restraining evil so that there can be civil society and there's law and order. And of course, it also has to do with promoting human welfare. And that is guaranteed justice and protecting uh, people from malicious uh, harm and um, providing freedom. And now remember, freedom is a relative term and it needs to be defined and quantified, but there should be some level of liberty, but that liberty needs to be constrained. So I, I would say basically restraining evil, uh, promoting human welfare, and uh, uh, providing uh, uh, freedom and limits on human freedom. The Bible does say that it is there to promote the good and uh, evil. And um, so a person um, under government uh, should expect those basic uh, functions. Should we rely on government to rectify all of society's ills and society's problems? I don't think government can solve every problem. Um, this is why you have uh, NGOs, that's when you have the church, that's why you have other uh, social organizations coming to, uh, into play in the matrix of all of human problems. Government um, can stretch itself so thin that in the process of trying to do too many things, it does nothing well. So it has to operate within certain limitations. And of course, in a democracy, the responsibility of government has widened. Uh, the Bible just leaves it a very basic idea of constraining evil and promoting human welfare. It doesn't give any specific details of how this is supposed to be done. Uh, but in a, a modern democracy, government's taken on, taken on certain responsibility. Take education. And there's no way in the Bible that education has been designated as a responsibility of government. It's the, the responsibility of the parent. But again, because of the the level of education that's required, I don't have any parent who can teach a child maths and English and physics and geometry and, and uh, social studies, et cetera, et cetera. So government takes that role on. And then, of course, uh, in order to create a more egalitarian society, this is where free primary education and free, and free secondary edu education comes in. Other, other than that, it puts people at a disadvantage. Uh, but to look to government to solve every problem is is, to, is a fantasy because government can't solve every problem and government needs to be able to operate with efficiency and it's got to be careful that it doesn't spread itself so thin that it can't perform the established duties that are required of it. If that's the case, then why is it that government seems so excited to lay the claim out there that we'll solve all of your problems when they're campaigning? Well, it's good politics. It's really good politics. I mean, I don't have a politician who on the campaign trail doesn't say that he can solve the problems, but in spite of all those bogus claims, the, the problems still exist, and everybody is aware of that. So I just think it is a man's egotism. It's uh, the idea of promoting uh, a particular party. And I do believe that there are honest politicians who really believe they can solve the problems, but to... Um, throw it out there that uh, they're the panacea for every problem and they can deal with every problem is, is just a great myth uh, in that regard. And I think it sounds good politically, but if that were true, we would not have any problems in society. And look how long we've had government. So <laughs> we just gotta, uh, we gotta be rational and we gotta evaluate government. We gotta understand that they exaggerate a lot. And we have to 
um, understand that there are limitations. Resources are limited, even in the Caribbean. We don't have any, we don't have oil, we don't have any natural resources within the Caribbean setting. With the exception of maybe um, Guyana and maybe Jamaica and Trinidad. Yeah. But all these other countries, basically, oh, you've got sand, sun, and human uh, resource. But other than that, we really don't have room for manufacturing and a lot of other things. I think that one of the great things that we do have in the Caribbean is agriculture, but that's a minor aspect. I don't have any government now that has made agriculture a centerpiece, which I think it really should be the centerpiece of the Caribbean to, uh, su- to supply the food for, for the region. We import too much. But um, we just have to uh, face the fact that government is limited to what it can do. The resources are limited. Uh, I believe that some try their best, uh, but sometimes they promise too much, and in the end it disappoints the people in the long term. You're listening to That's Truth, and I want to say a quick thank you and a welcome to those of you that are watching on Facebook Live. We are glad to have you along, and if you have a question for Pastor Murphy, you can just put that in the comments, and then it will be passed along, and he will answer it on the air. If you are listening on AM, FM, or online, we are also glad to have you, and we want your questions whether it be on this topic or maybe another question that someone asked you recently or came to your mind, and you would like Pastor Murphy's assistance in answering it. Pastor Murphy, you laid out that government is not the answer to all of society's problems, all of man's problems. But should it be the first resource that we turn to? Or because family was instituted first, by God, should we turn to family first and then government if all else fails? It might seem like a platitude, but I think the first option should always be God. Okay. Uh, I think that he should be the first one that we turn to for help. Um, the individual certainly should look next within his family circle. And um, I would also suggest that the community of faith, the church, is another um, resource that people have available to them, and then, of course, um, the government. But it is always God first, and family second, and then um, the church, the, the, the government and the church comes into play. But we can't just all turn to government to solve every problem. It's, it's virtually impossible to do that. Uh, most problems that the government solve are economic problems, create the environment for uh, entrepreneurs and for investment in a country. And, and of course, deal with health issues, deal with maintaining the roads, um, good supply of water, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But um, other than that, um, to expect the government to do everything and turn to the government every time you have a problem, I think it's a big mistake. Do we have any historical evidence that comes to mind as far as what happens if a government goes beyond what God instituted government to do? We have several examples of that. Uh, Franco in Spain, uh, where he had extreme nationalism. You've got uh, fascism in Italy, Mussolini. Then in Germany, had the Nazism uh, under Hitler, the Third Reich. And of course, you have the communists in Russia and also the communists in, in, in China. Um, and um, clearly, more people have died in the 20th century than any other period of human history, and mainly because of the communist uh, ideology. And and clearly, when a a government goes beyond what God says and makes itself the centerpiece and and completely obliterate the concept of God, uh, uh, establishes atheism, advocates atheism, um, it leads 
to all kinds of atrocity, where the state now becomes the object to be worshipped, and the state becomes central, and everything is about the state. Uh, when that happens, clearly, uh, loyalty uh, is required of the state, and it comes a division between your loyalty to God and the loyalty to the state. And in, mo- in many cases, this has led to um, imprisonment, has led to slaughter. Um, it, it's, it's, I think, the history in itself in the 21st century with these things, fascism and especially the communism. Uh, put the two of those together, they've killed more millions of people than any other form of government that you can think about. And remember, this is the 20th, 20th century we're talking about. We were supposed to be more enlightened, more educated. Um, so when government goes beyond that, clearly it creates problems. To take, again, um, the problem in America today with the uh, Wade, um, Roe and Wade case with, with uh, abortion. Yeah. Uh, look, we'd have gone beyond uh, what God has set a standard that life begins at conception. Very clear in the Bible, life begins at conception. But look what America has done since um, 1974. America alone has slaughtered over 37 million innocent babies. That is government going beyond the limits that God has set. And uh, I, um, one wonders if you take the totality of the abortion rate. America alone from 1974, 37 million. We haven't talked about Europe yet. We haven't talked about Africa yet. We haven't even talked about China that has this uh, two-child policy. Yeah. So anytime government goes beyond the limits that God has set, it, it, it uh, leads to mayhem and many times violating people's rights. As you mentioned, the communism government in China, it just reminded me of earlier today I heard that the Pope, I don't know if you've heard this, Pastor, the Pope recently came to an agreement with the government of China, that they will recognize him as the Pope. At, and one of the terms of the agreement was that any church leader that is appointed in China now has to also be approved by the atheist communist government of China. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, Catholicism is a chameleon. It, it adjusts, it changes. Uh, again, go back and read Alexander's Hislops, The Two Babylons. Fascinating book to read. But if you read that, you'll see how over the years the, the Catholic Church has brought into the church all forms of paganism to, to win the pagans. So every festival that the pagans had, the Catholic Church came up with a similar parallel to bring the pagans into the, the, the system. So I would not be at all surprised that uh, the Pope would go over, the, go over there. And as long as the Pope is recognized as the Pope, the Catholic Church pretty much is willing to take and embrace almost anything. So that doesn't surprise me one bit. Would you see that as another step toward the ecumenical movement of the the Catholic Church in the book of Revelation? There's no doubt that the Catholic Church will play a major role in the end times, and especially being the cement to bring all religions under the umbrella of the Pope. I've seen pictures of the Pope in a Hindu temple praying. Uh, he will go to a Buddhist temple as well. Uh, again, Catholicism is an eclectic religion, basically, where it brings everybody under one umbrella. The whole thing is to come under the Catholic Church because there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. That's the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. So if you can get them under the pale of the Catholic Church where the Pope is head, uh, you almost have natural redemption. You don't need, really, in truth and fact, to go through the process of of trusting Jesus and so on and so forth. You become a Catholic. So, uh, and uh, if you read Revelation... 
uh, it is very, very clear that the whore that raised the beasts, the end time, the Antichrist, if you were to uh, remember who, who, how she's described, that she is the one that slaughtered the martyrs. In the, and then the, the colors that are used to describe uh, this, um, this, this woman and the beast are all, I mean, anyone that knows history, anyone that knows the, the, the colors that the Pope wears would know very clearly that the Bible is giving symbolic indications so that you can actually see it happening today as well. And that's why the, the, the Pope goes across the world almost like an itinerary, uh, uh, potatic, um person going the wrong train to to bring every religion under the umbrella. It doesn't mind you can remain as long as you come under the Pope. Uh, that is one of the most egregious errors that are, is being perpetrated. But again, the, the whole idea is bringing everybody together, one religion. That's the whole concept, bringing on one, one religion. Because basically we're being told that all religions lead to the same place. We just differ. We might call him Jehovah. We might call him Allah. You might call him Vishnu. But basically, it's the same God. That's where we're headed. And anyone that is familiar with the ecumenical movement and what has happened over the years would know that we are clearly coming on the umbrella of the Catholic Church. Even the evangelicals uh, a few years ago had signed some kind of agreement with the Catholic. Remember John MacArthur was one of the ones that came out and spoke very strongly against this alliance. Uh, but that's where we're headed. It's a prophetic word in that matter, and I think that that's exactly the trend of world history. Do we have anywhere in Scripture that God puts limitations on government? Uh so Besides what I just read to you there, what I mentioned, not read, told you about restraining evil and promoting human welfare, uh, we are told that they're to punish wrongdoers and to praise the good. Um, it is clear that there are some limitations because uh, take, take one or two examples in, in the scriptures. You take Daniel, for example. The government mandated that there be a moratorium on prayer. Nobody would pray. And of course, Daniel completely violated it in the open. He opened his window and he prayed because his first allegiance was not to the king. His first allegiance is to God. You come to the book of Acts, where the disciples are carrying out the Great Commission. And uh, the promise is given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, going to all the world, and uh, you shall receive power and they're doing it and then they are told not to speak in this name they're told to hold their peace and uh, Peter is beaten put in prison but remember what they're told what the disciples told um, the the, uh, civil authorities we must obey God rather rather than than man so clearly there are limitations Uh, if a government goes against scripture the Christian has no right to obey this, uh, to obey what that government does. Suppose the government would say, um, we must close down the church, or uh, we can't evangelize. Now, we, we will have a clash there because we have given a, re- a mandate in the Bible uh, to worship God and to evangelize. So clearly, we could not in any way um, um, submit to that. Uh, it might call for civil disobedience in some form or the other. But clearly there are limits because both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see that, by example, uh, they understood the limits and they drew the attention of the authorities. We have a WhatsApp message that just came in from a listener in Villa Antigua. I am not an advocate of socialism, but how do we solve the problem of such vast inequalities in society? Also, what are your thoughts on universal health care? 
you, you, you put him in a, <laughs> I, I will give you an honest answer from my own perspective. Um, I think that one of the, there's several things that can be done. Um, I do feel that the government, um, I think income tax, to be very honest with you, and the graded income tax, I think that's one of the ways you can diminish inequalities. The guy who's making in a higher bracket, he pays more tax than the guy at the bottom. I, I do feel that that is one way that um, you can legitimate begin to change the whole wealth of a country, uh, etc. Uh, I do feel as well that um, government helping um, people to start up businesses, I think that is another way to help to um, deal with the inequality in society. But as long as you're in a democracy, you have law and order, and you have lawyers, you cannot infringe on people's rights, and people have a right to private property. Uh, all the government can do is to create an environment to encourage uh, young entrepreneurs to get involved. To start up a business in the Caribbean is extremely expensive. Uh, the government needs to look at that, how to make it easier um, to, to try to deal with those those kind of issues. And then there's a, a social safety net that, that the government should look at, people who are uh, at the lower end of the scale. Um, you know, I think they should look at that. For example, um, there are people who got to go to the hospital today, and believe me, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you have Social Security, uh, you get some help and some reduction. I think the government probably should look at that aspect as well. Um, why should a person in the higher bracket um, be paying this person lower that doesn't have much do that? Where you want to be very, very careful is how you don't, um, in, in trying to uh, equalize society, that you infringe on other people's rights. Uh, we in a democracy believe that people have a right to, to earn wealth. We must not be ashamed of making wealth. If a man has the capacity to make wealth and he works hard and he's successful, we should no way try to demean him or degrade him. If he's successful, we should celebrate success. But uh, to help, on the other hand, I think the government can help to assist people to start up businesses, etc. The other thing that you can really do to kind of equalize this whole matter is education. There's no doubt about that. The, the way to make progress um, in the Caribbean is to improve your education, and that puts you in a better job and puts you in a better position um, within society. Uh, what was the other part of the question? Universal health care. It only gets harder. <laughs> I, I, I do feel that um, health is, is vitally important for any country. Um, it, the ideal is to get universal health care. The problem is how do you pay for it? And that is the biggest headache that they have today. And uh, I am not too sure that we within the Caribbean, with the population that we have, uh, how we be able to get that accomplished with such a limited population. How do we spread the, the risk over such a limited population? But I think the ideal um, would be to, to allow that. I, I'm not too sure if it still pertains in Barbados, but I do know that when I was a boy, um, and I went to the hospital, I paid absolutely nothing. It was a service the government rendered to all citizens, and it was irrespective of who. Uh, I am not too sure if that has changed since I've not been there. Uh, but increasingly, medicine and, and, and the health issues are very expensive. Hospitals are expensive to run. Uh, and then you've got to tax people because there's no money tree for the government to just shake and the money comes in. If we want these services, 
they must be prepared to be taxed more. If the citizen is willing to pay more taxes, then the government is able to offer more service. But that's the ideal, I think, that's worth working towards. But how you pay for it is going to be the biggest issue. Are you aware of any ways that the government can encourage a work ethic? It seems like as society becomes less and less uh, Judeo-Christian based on those principles, uh, it seems like work ethic, from my observation, seems to be going downhill. Are you aware of any ways the government can encourage that? I I think I I wish we could probably give some more thought to that in the future because that's a very, very valid uh, um, concern. Um, I myself um, worry about the, the work ethic when, when I see it. Uh, whether it be government workers on the road where they're taking five people to just lift one shovel. Um, and exaggerating here, but yeah. gratefully you can watch any time you've got word work, uh, road work to do and you observe. Some guys are sitting in the one area, other guys on the wall, other guys are working. Uh, I don't know how how the government would be able to solve that without having a, a proficient supervisor who expects uh, high levels of work and hold men to that. Um, but without the changing of supervisors and um, really taking the matter of time and um, job efficiency, I don't know at this point in time what else can be done. Everything, it had to be somebody supervising the work that um, gets as much out of the people as possible. Without that, I don't know how it can be done individually. We are discussing as a general topic tonight government and the Christian's responsibility to government and what the Bible says on those topics. Thank you to the listener who sent in that message via WhatsApp. I know that others have questions and we would love to answer those. You can either send those in as a comment on Facebook Live or you can WhatsApp and text them to 268 782 one four five four. Again, WhatsApp or text two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Or you can call and be put live on the air. We would love to put you on the air. The number is two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Again, two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Pastor, you were referencing several different styles of government. Uh, there's lots of them, but there'd be a republic or democracy, communism, uh, a monarchy. Does the Bible specifically say that one, this is the correct biblical model of government, or that's left up to a region to decide what type of government they want? There's no one singular government form of government pointed in the Bible as the ideal. Um, under the Old Testament, you had the monarchy, you had a theocracy, um, and then you come down into the um, the Roman time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You've got um, dictators, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there's nothing there in the Bible that that says that this is the particular form of government. However, we do have some hints as to perhaps what is the best form of government. For example. Um, if you take the Ten Commandments, certainly it gives you the right to private property. Thou shalt not steal. So clearly a government that facilitates private uh, ownership would be more in line with the biblical model than one that uh, vests all uh, capital resources and, and um, 
means of production within the central government, which is communism. But clearly, uh, also, if you take some of the parables of our Lord, he talks about um, occupy till I come, and he gave the talent, and then he said, um, the guy that buried it said, at least you could have put it, and it gained interest. So clearly, um, there is also a hint that you should have uh, investment, and there should be some form of interest paid on investment. Uh, what I'm saying to you that you can extract basic, some, some fundamental principles that will help you to... And then uh, the idea of freedom. You can't read the book of Genesis without seeing that uh, God intended man to be free. You put him in a garden and give him all the liberty in the world. And of course, that freedom was curtailed by the introduction of human government in chapter number nine because of man's sin in the fall in chapter three. But a government that enables freedom and liberty, uh, clearly that is a form of government that should occur. And then the idea of um, 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 the right to vote and the right to decide, for example, even in church government, uh, when Paul is telling, dealing the guy with discipline, he says, um, you know, why can you not judge that what this man done is is wrong? Uh, I'm not there, but I have judged already. And he said, put the man in the outside. So here you have a, uh, a form of democracy operating in the church where the members are voting. I'm just saying that when you look at those kind of basic principles, a government that encourages ownership, uh, investment, uh, business, a government that involves freedom and liberty, a government that uh, involves some form of voting, um, which is what democracy is about. Uh, it, and, and then the other thing, of course, because of man's sinful nature, we have to limit any one individual having too much power. So a dictatorship where one man rules everybody else, that falls into disfavor, looking at it from the fact of man's fall. You've got to limit man's power. So there's no, there's no, there's no one form of government that the Bible endorses. And a Christian has to learn to live within the context of his government where he is. So Christians in Russia can live under a communist regime. Christians in China should live under a communist regime. Uh, those that in the Muslim world, some of those are still very strong monarchies. Christians need to live within those systems. So um, we can't go about, um, it's not our mission to uh, create a democracy in everywhere we go. That's not the mission of the church. So the, ch the believers have got to learn to live within the setting uh, where God has placed them, live within that setting. And as much as possible, unless that government is violating um, some biblical principle that bothers your conscience, you have to live within the confines of that government. Because later on we'll discover that Paul says that there are three things a Christian should do for the government. Any government, pray for the government. He said, number two, that we need to submit to the government. And number three, we need to obey the government. And number four, pay taxes. Okay? <laughs> Those are the four things that Paul says that the Christian should do. But there's no ideal government set forth in Scripture. However, I will say one last thing. Clearly that Jesus Christ is going to be the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, basically, a monarchy, basically. But it's a benign monarchy because it's the, uh, the one of righteous and holiness who will reign. So that would be the ideal of God's government that, that he would rule. But because of man's sinful nature, we dare not give one man that kind of power. He has no sin. He is God and man at the same time. So he's not going to be influenced by the same weaknesses we have. But the ideal, ultimately, is going to be a monarchy where he, he rules. But here on planet Earth, democracy is preferred. <laughs> How would you respond, though, to the argument that 
the Bible promotes socialism. I believe it's in the book of Acts mm-hmm. where the Christians first gathered together mm-hmm. and they were uh, bringing everything and they had everything in common, I believe, is the passage. Yeah. Well, that's not socialism because okay. that was voluntary. I mean, the volunt- communism is that we, we take from the rich and we give to the poor. So there's no choice there. And the, the means of production is vested in the state. Whether it be the capital you need or the land that you need to do the factories, everything is. So that's not communism. Communism basically is that you've got um, a Politburo uh, uh, who decides everything. You don't own any land. They own all the land. You, you the, All the factors of production is owned by the communists. And then uh, the funny thing about communism, by the way, is supposed to create an egalitarian, equalized society. But the leaders are always the richest people in the country. By the time communism falls, the people who really had the money was that small group who ruled. All the other people were, were brought to nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of ironic that they'd be advocating communism, but they're the ones who got the biggest homes, got the biggest cars, got the business means, and the poor guy who is saying that's a good thing to do, waiting for it to be done, it never happens. Yeah. So, Speaking of that, that leads me to why does it seem as though there is so much corruption in government? And I'm not just talking about governments here in the Caribbean or in the Western Hemisphere. It just seems like government breeds corruption. Simple answer. Okay. The love of money is the root of all evil. Okay. It boils down to that. Um, man's de- man's desire is like hell. It's, it can never be filled. His lust for, for power and for uh, wealth, it's, it's ingrained, it's almost intuitive that people want the good things in life. They want the best. They want the most. And the more a man has, rather than it throwing water on the fire of his greed, it actually ignites it. Uh, he, if he has a million dollars, he wants two. If he got two million, he wants three. He wants four. He wants five. So human nature is such that it, it craves affluence. Uh, it craves wealth. It, 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 it claims it, 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 it craves personal well-being. So it's not surprising that when a person gets into power uh, that they become corrupt. That is why there have to be always some kind of limits put on government. And so certain systems have to be put in place to avoid the corruption, at least minimize it. I don't think you can totally avoid it, but you need to minimize it. But it's just human nature. Fallen human nature is greedy, uh, is covetous, and that's human nature. You referenced it a little bit ago, but can you expound a little bit more on what is the Christian's responsibility to government? Well, again, if we uh, I refer to some references in... Um, in Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse one and two, he said that supplication of prayer be made for kings. So clearly, it's a Christian responsibility to pray for the government. And he said that we might uh, restrain and uh, uh, retain an, um, a peaceful and quiet life. Uh, and then in Titus, it talks about being submissive to the rulers and authorities, and to be obedient to them. Titus chapter three, verse one, and then Pierce Peter chapter two, verse thirteen to seventeen, he says, being subject to the authorities for the Lord's sake, every institution, whether emperor or governor, uh, he says. And he said to honor the emperor. And then, of course, uh, Romans chapter one uh, to seven, it talks about obeying the government uh, because it's a minister of God for good. And if we resist the government, we resist God because that's the God in authority and that the government has a right to execute 
punishment. It does not bear the sword in vain. So um, to pray for them, submit to government, obey government, and, and um, pay taxes. Uh, Paul talked about paying both taxes and customs, direct taxes and indirect taxes. And I don't know anybody who likes to pay taxes. But that is the mandate given in the scripture for the believer living within a civil society because the government performs functions and they need money. They've got to fix roads. They've got to keep the water going. They've got electricity. They've got education. They've got health. Um, they they got uh, tons of other things that government, uh, we enjoy. All of these amenities... Uh, we should not enjoy these amenities without understanding we have a responsibility. Government needs funding, and they, they put taxes and, and, and duties, etc. And Paul says, you know, do it. You're as a Christian, you're living in a society, you're benefiting. You've got to help the society by paying your taxes. Now, I know you're quoting Paul there, but do you really think that Paul was able to see into the future and understood what maybe an oppressive government was or what kind of messed up, uh, perverted world that we would be living in in 2000 and, let's see, we're 2018, coming up on 2019? Yeah, look, the passage in Romans chapter 13 is an amazing passage. Uh, what Paul is teaching and the counsel that he orders in terms of absolute obedience on the part of the Christian to civil authority. Uh, remember that the setting of that passage is the imperial imperialistic society. It's not a democracy as we know. You've got Caesar on the throne and just around the corner you've got Nero who eventually killed Paul. So when Paul says to us to pay taxes, be submissive and that they're ordained of God, Paul is talking about tyranny. He's talking about a dictatorship. So uh, he didn't have to see into the past. He's speaking to the present when he wrote that. And don't forget that Paul is inspired and the instruction given to the Apostle Paul is not just Paul's ideas. This is God's idea. Remember, government is founded by God. So the instruction Paul gives to the church uh, is something relevant, not just in Paul's day. It's relevant for our times. We still have to pray for government. We still have to submit to government. We still have to obey government. We still have to pay taxes. So whether he saw into the future or not, God saw into the future. And he's the one that laid down these principles of how the Christian must act within the government. I know where it says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. But is there an exception clause that is assumed for when that tax money is used to promote abortion or other activities that are clearly against scriptural principles? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say this. Uh, um, I believe that human life and man made in the image of God is probably the most precious um, virtue we're fighting for, of most important principle. Uh, if the your taxpayers' money was being used to pay for abortion, I do feel that Christians ought to rise up and ought to practice civil, civil disobedience and maybe have some sittings and confrontation with the, the government, not in a violent way. Uh, this is one of the aspects. I could not vote for government that legalized abortion. I just could not do it. Uh, I will be hold, held ultimately responsible for uh, being a patron of that government, and therefore I, I really couldn't do it. Uh, I could not vote for any politician who was going to endorse abortion, because to do that, I am complicit in the murder of innocence, and I would not get involved in that. And I do feel that there are always limits to what the government can do, and in particular when your, your money is, is being used for those particular purposes, I do feel that Christians have a right to protest uh, those kind of matters. 
You're listening to That's Truth. The time is 8.15, and we would love to be able to answer some of your questions. You can WhatsApp them to 268-782-1454. You can call and be put on the air by calling us at 268-462-7420. Brother Nathan, let me just um, make another comment, if I may. It's interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul often appealed uh, to the pagan tribunal of the Roman Empire uh, when he was falsely accused or about to be punished. Remember in uh, Philippians, he said, I appeal to Caesar? Yes. When, so so Paul, was using, Paul was a Roman citizen, and Paul is using his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And part of the reason why uh, Paul found it that it was easier to pour, uh, uh, appeal to a, um, a pagan tribunal uh, in order to avoid the fury of the, the Jewish mob. And so he used his legal rights as a citizen to protect himself from these, this Jewish mob. So would that be a biblical model for us to be able to follow? Well, we, we can't go wrong by following the Apostle Paul. And remember that government is ordained of God. Again, we go to um, Romans chapter 13. It makes it very, very clear. Man did not in, invent government. It said clearly that government is ordained of God. God ordained government, again, to have law and order. Sin without government will eventually lead to anarchy and chaos. You need government. But man didn't invent it. It's God that ordained that to restrain man. So we have a legitimate right to use government when it's in our interests uh, because that's a right given to us. So you're saying that even the oppressive, abusive governments, the evil governments of this world are ordained of God? Well, let me put it this way. The concept of government, of controlling by authority is what God has established. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that you've raised that question. I would like to, if you would allow me to um, point out that there are several passages in the Bible that uh, makes it very clear that the government in power could not be in power had God, God not allowed it. I just want to show you uh, Jeremiah chapter 27. Uh, I probably should have marked it before, but Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse number 5 to 7 reads this way. Um, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm, arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomsoever it seems right to me. I mean, that's an amazing statement God is saying. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I've given him all the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Own land come. Then many nations and great nations, kings shall make him their slave. But notice that God is controlling. He's saying, it is I who own the world and I decide who sits on the throne. Daniel, as well, is another good reference, if I might just quote that for just a moment. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse number 21 is a, another uh, verse that goes to this. It says this, uh, this is what it reads. Speaking, uh, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Here it is. He removes kings and he sets up kings. God is Lord of the universe. 
he controls these matters. And then Daniel chapter 4 and verse number 17 is another interesting verse. Um, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets up over it the lowliest of men. So you cannot believe in those verses that God is saying, I control, right? And um, whether we are prepared to accept it or not, God changes governments because he has a plan and every the plan is being worked out. And certain things have to happen in the process of the plan being made out, which involves certain individuals. If I might cite an example, uh, um, you take, we go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, when it talks about the Northern Alliance coming against Israel. That alliance will include Russia in the north. It would include Iran, which is called Persia. It would include Sudan and Libya. So Russia had to get back into the Middle East. But how, when did Russia get back into the Middle East? Just eight years ago, yeah. within the last eight years. Yeah. right? And again, a particular individual had to be on the throne who was not prepared to use their military might to defend. And what I'm saying to you, that individuals are placed in those kind of conditions. Again, another individual had to come on the throne to deal with the Iran thing, to push Iran in the direction of, of, of Russia. Again, I'm talking, I don't want to call names, mm. but very, very clearly, when Russia came back into the Middle East, uh, America was caught by surprise. Uh, when they flew their planes in and came in, they wasn't picked up on the radar, and suddenly, Russia is in Syria. Now she's got a naval base there, etc. So, but again, how was that going to be configured? Ezekiel 38 talks about Russia, the Northern Empire, joining with Iran, joining with Libya, etc., etc. So someone had to be on the throne to permit that. Remember so that Russia was out of the Middle East completely. So you're saying that no political leader that is ever put in control or ever gets in control is catches God off guard? No one that rules is mm -hmm. there except God permits it. Simple as that. And we may find it hard to swallow. Yeah. But that's the biblical teaching. I'm thinking back to Israel and the the way that God used the uh, Babylonians to take them into captivity and to, to punish them, yeah. but then later God punished the Babylonians. This was the dilemma that Habakkuk had. Habakkuk cries out to God, you know, uh, act, act, look at my people, what they're doing. And uh, when God says he's going to act, Habakkuk goes into a fit. Because God said, okay, you want me to act? I'm going to bring the Babylonians, I'm going to destroy my people. And they said, but how can you bring a wicked nation to destroy a nation that's much more righteous than them? And then God turned around and said to him quite frankly, when I finished chastening Israel with the Babylonians, I will turn around and deal with the Babylonians. Every nation gets what it finally deserves. And remember, there's a moral universe. A moral universe. When a nation moves away from God, part of the punishment often is the would be the leader that he, he allows on the throne at that particular time. So uh, we got to understand that God is not biting his thumb and biting his nails up there wondering what is happening on planet Earth. He has a plan that's being worked out, and he is controlling the world affairs in the inches of his plan. Pastor, is it possible and is it a good idea for a Christian to serve as an elected official in a government? I have no qualms about Christian uh, serving in that capacity. As a matter of fact, 
I think that Christians who don't serve in a real sense, they are not fulfilling their role to pursue a just and righteous society. I think they're being delinquent in not trying to perform that role. What I would say, though, I do feel that pastors in particular should stay out of politics. God has called pastors to preach the word, to minister his people. No pastor I know can have enough time to be involved in politics and all that the political arena and still have time to feed the flock of God if God has called you to be a pastor, to be a pastor. But I do believe that laymen in the church who are not called uh, to full-time ministry, I do believe that Christians should get involved in politics. By the way, were that not true, uh, all of the major social changes we've seen in Western world, whether it be the reforms in jails, uh, hospitals, schools, uh, the Was it end of slavery. slavery. Yeah, if there were not Christians involved in, in these different uh, government posts, we would not have had all of those major social changes. So I do believe firmly uh, that Christian, and I believe that Christians who do not abdicate their responsibility in the pursuit of a just and righteous society, they they, they can't withdraw from society and then complain that it's becoming corrupt. Now, I know that people will say, well, you, beca- you don't have to become corrupt. Daniel served in the, in the kingdom of uh, Babylon for so many years, but he maintained his character. Joseph also. Joseph as well. There's never anything negative so, said about Joseph. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So I do think that there's a, a role for Christians uh, to be in government. And I think the salt... Now, where do you need salt? You need salt where there's corruption because yeah. there's salt. So it if purifies. we stay out of those places where they're corrupt, where's the salt? We do need light where there's darkness. So I do think that Christians have a vital role to play in this matter. Along the same line, there's a WhatsApp message that came from Antigua. Is it okay for born-again believers to also be among any government to give advice beside just praying for them from a distance? Of course. Wisdom does not uh, is exclusively the domain of the unsaved man. Uh, we have a wisdom from God. So if we can help the government and give them good advice, of course, I, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, I think you'll be remiss in your duties to your country and to your fellow man. We must be concerned about our neighbor. And one of the best ways we can show our concern for neighbors get involved in, in government, advising government in what is right and proper and what would really benefit the, the, the masses and the majority. So I think it's very appropriate to do that. Now, you encouraged believers, if you f- they feel the Lord leading them to serve, to serve. This is a quote from a book that I read today, uh, read part of the book, uh, quote by John MacArthur, and it's just curious if you agree with it. Instead of political activism, a far better strategy for Christians is to focus on being faithful to what God has actually called them to do with their within their sphere of influence, exalting the Savior, encouraging the saints, evangelizing the lost, and exhibiting godly character. Well said, but notice what John MacArthur said, what God has called them to do, to okay. function within that capacity. He's actually talking about people in the church who are not called in the political realm, but maybe called to be doctors, lawyers, maybe called to be nurses, whatever, and to do evangelism. A person who feels that he's called into the realm of helping to shape his government in the interest of the general welfare of other people, uh, that is well within his calling. Uh, so John MacArthur is not suggesting 
saying that a person calling the political arena should not get engaged, but he's saying that if you're called, the area that you're called, you function in that area and do what you can. And I agree with that. You're a public school teacher. Use your influence there to be salt and light in the public school setting. You're called to be a banker. Use your influence when it comes to ethics and, and that as well. You're called to be part of um, some NGO organization, whatever it is. You're called to be involved in athletics. By the way, uh, I was just in St. Lucia, and this uh, young lady that is the top jumper in the Caribbean, the best jumper she ever produced, Laverne Spence, I think that's her name, uh, she is using her influence on the world stage to be a testament of witness of Jesus Christ. She's now the sixth best high jumper in the world. She's there in St. Louis. She was in the church with me. I was just in the church with her. But she has not allowed her success and her fame to diminish her Christian influence. She's now using her influence as a voice for God and a voice for righteousness. That's what we need to do. Athlete, be the best athlete, be a voice there. Doctor, lawyer, plumber, you just name it. Be the best that you can and use your influence in that capacity. How do we strike a balance between, I'm speaking on behalf of those who are serving in politics, how do they strike a balance between their responsibilities to man as a politician and their responsibilities to God? Well, again, if you go into, uh, I think it is Colossians and Ephesians, Paul deals with that to some extent. Uh, in dealing with um, the order of priorities, uh, Paul gives this order. It's God first, your family second, and then your vocation. If you check Ephesians and Colossians, the last two chapters, you'll see that that's the order in which he gives it. So again, this is the order I would suggest to the person. Uh, things with conflict, but you have to have your priorities uh, in order. And your first priority is always to God. Secondly, is to your family. And then it's to your vocation. If you can maintain that priority, you have to keep, and you'll be struggling all in life to keep that balance. But again, at least you have some kind of a matrix that you can use as a standard to know exactly when, when it, well, I'm now not spending time with my family. I need to pull it back in line. I'm giving too much time to my, my work and I don't have time for God. I need to bring it back in line. So we need to keep that, that particular priority, that order of priority in line. And it'll be a constant battle, no matter what you do, whether you be a politician, whether you be, what Whatever job you're doing, it always intrudes on your relationship with God, your relationship with your family, and you have to maintain that balance. A very practical question that just came in from a listener in Antigua. If there are no candidates with Christian values in one's constituency, should a Christian vote? Hey, maybe a choice between two evils. And Is that biblical? The lesser evil. Well, I, I'm not too sure. I think a Christian should vote um, it is virtually impossible to conceive that you would have politicians running for an area and they don't have an agenda that is, is helpful to the country. It's not just helpful to the church. You've got to look at the fact of helpful to the, to the country. I can vote for a politician that I think is immoral, but I think that he, in what he's doing, he doesn't violate my Christian principles. Uh, he is for my Christian liberty. He may not be perfect. I can vote for the, for a person like that. On the other hand, I may have a Christian who professes to be a Christian, but they may be pushing an agenda that I can't support, like abortion. And yeah. that's the that's the thing. I would rather vote for the guy that's not a Christian, for a guy who's. A, I don't vote just because the guy's a Christian or non-Christian. You have to decide wh who. 
which politician is best in line with your biblical principles? Now, both of them might be bad, but which one is closest to those biblical principles? But you have a right to vote. It's a part of your democratic responsibility. You just can't vote for just Christians. Is it a sin for a Christian to not vote? I wouldn't say it's a sin, but I think it's a... um, it's um, reneging on one's responsibility. If we're really concerned for uh, the welfare, general welfare of society, we want to see things improve, whether economic, social, moral, technological. Um, what I'm saying that we have a voice, and we should be concerned that the country is going in a certain direction. And I would not call it a sin, but I would think that if it's a, a, a choice has to be made and your, 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 your uh, vote could make a difference in terms of the direction the country is going. I think if you just sit back and just let the, the status quo remain and uh, when there could be a possible change, I do feel that you'll be held responsible for that. What about the argument that says that we're called to be salt, we're called to be light, mm-hmm. and the Bible clearly says that the salt can lose its its savor? Uh-huh. Um, by not voting, are we not becoming that salt that is good for nothing by not taking a stand? This is a conscious thing. Again, I I always prefer to leave matters like this finally to conscience. If a Christian feels at ease and his conscience is not bothering him in regard that he's not going to vote, uh, I will not charge him with any form of sin because uh, the Bible makes it very clear. Paul said, let every man decide in his own mind. I think that's one of those legitimate. But I do believe that we are abrogating our responsibility if we can be a catalyst for change by a vote and uh, allow the status quo to remain by not voting. Another listener in Antigua sent in a question. Pastor, would you encourage a Christian to get involved in politics? Would it affect their testimony? And to what extent... Do you think it will damage their reputation? I feel that Christians need to get involved in politics. I'm not, again, I repeat, pastors need to stay out of politics. That's not your calling. Your calling is the church. So let me be very, very, very clear on this matter. But I do believe that there are lay people in our churches who can really make a real contribution to change in the country. And... Um, I, every, whatever political party you're part of, you're going to hear somebody complain about corruption, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is a conscience decision that you have to make as well. If you, in all good conscience, feel that you can make a contribution to your country and you are concerned about the direction of the country, you feel that by being part of the political system, you can bring about some form of Christian change. Uh, I am not going to fault you if you make that decision uh, to go in there to try to help. You must be concerned about your neighbor and about the society, and you cannot be really concerned about your neighbor and society and sit back and do nothing. So I feel that you have a right to do it. I would encourage more Christians to get involved in politics because I do feel that wisdom does not uh, is not exclusive to the unsafe person. I believe that they're highly qualified Christians, just as qualified as the secular guy, and I think that they can really real, make a real contribution and change the direction of the country, not just technologically and economic, but morally and spiritually. Um, I just think that uh, I wish more believers would get involved. Now, if for any reason um, you feel that your testimony is going to be finally ruined, I think your testimony is more important than politics. But I don't 
cannot conceive that um, within the Caribbean uh, that a person, because they're going to politics, to lose the, the testimony and the reputation. I, I can't foresee that. You're listening to That's Truth. We still have 25 minutes left in the program, and we would love to have your questions. Thank you to those who have sent in questions thus far. You can call and ask Pastor Murphy a question live on the air. The number to call is 268-462-7420. Again, if you want to call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question to us, you can send that to 268 782 one four five four or if you're watching on facebook live and you would like to send in a question just put it as a comment and it will get passed along to pastor murphy no matter how you have joined us this evening we are glad that you are part of the program time across the eastern caribbean is eight thirty-six. pastor murphy our eschatology views the world is it's going to get worse and worse and worse until the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. So why should I even extend any effort to be involved in politics or to vote or to be involved in civil unrest? Well, let's put it this way. You, you know, we're living in a society. Nobody's isolating himself. Nobody's isolated. We benefit from all the amenities that we enjoy in a society and all that the government, I mean, um, can you fix the road yourself? No. Obviously not. Can you get water supplied to your home by yourself? No. Can you get electricity? You know, we are we are enjoying a lot of benefits that government perform. So we have a responsibility. We just can't enjoy all the benefits without a responsibility. Uh, even though we know that the Bible makes it clear that this is a downward spiral, that society is not going to improve. We're returning to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and the days of Noah. We know that. Uh, Paul talks about evil men and seducers to wax worse and worse. Uh, P- Paul talks about in Timothy, perilous times shall come. We all know that. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 gives a whole litany of the woes that's coming upon planet Earth. But again, I must occupy until he comes, and I must use my influence as light and as salt as, as, until he comes. That doesn't mean that I just... Uh, withdraw myself from society like the monks doing going to a cave and just live my life not being concerned and just develop my own spiritual life I have a responsibility to people around me to my neighbor so I must do whatever I can to help my neighbor to help my family to help society that's my role I am not clashing with God uh, as far as that is concerned I'm performing my role as a citizen in a society where I was born so I don't think the two of them are at odds with each other uh, in any regard have a WhatsApp that just came in. Shouldn't Christians focus on spiritual matters and just stay out of politics? I I wish you would read uh, the person who wrote that would really understand read um, social changes in society. I want to recommend a book that uh, you ought to get on online. I've mentioned it before. How Christianity Changed the World. Yeah. I would suggest the person who just sent me that email, uh, that mail by WhatsApp, to go online, Google um, How Christianity Changed the World, and read that book. It's one of the most fascinating books you will ever read. And the changes in every single discipline, every single department that you can conceive of, 
uh, look at the Christian influence. And these are people who were innovative. These were people who were game changers. And these are people who led the fight and were the vanguard uh, of all of these great social changes. What it has to do with prison reform, what it has to do with medicine, um, what it has to do with uh, uh, dealing with uh, people who are mentally ill. Infanticide, child uh, yeah, abandonment. Yeah, all of those things. It's, the, the, the whole list is so... Uh, it's a massive list of uh, the influence that believers have done. And I wish sometimes that Christian would read uh, the changes that brought about. These things that just didn't happen. Most of us in our history learn about Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, uh, Bishop Lasca Sass. Uh, I mean, it's a, but I think that this is a generation that is so preoccupied with these um, these simple electronic games that they don't read extensively to really see the value of Christian involvement. Uh, I think once you read that book and you see the impact that Christians have made, had those people taken the same attitude you're suggesting, just concentrate on the spiritual and completely ignore the planet Earth, think of where we would be today. But they understand they had a responsibility to God, but they also had a responsibility to their fellow man. And that is why they played an active role in dealing with these issues. And that book is written by Alvin Schmidt. And I want to just read through this list. I sure. came across this today, sure. and it really was eye-opening to me. Examples include outline, outline of infanticide, child abandonment, the gladiator games in ancient Rome, the ending of practice of human sacrifice among European cultures, the banning of pedophilia and polygamy, and prohibiting and burning of widows in India. You mentioned Wilberforce, a committed Christian who was behind the uh, abolition of slavery. Uh, also, Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s in the U.S. Civil rights. And that's that's not even the entire list, but... Uh, I do not have that book, but I look forward to reading it. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, inject here, though. The church's main purpose is to evangelize the world and to edify the saints of God. We're not saying that the church should ignore that responsibility. But not everybody is called to be an evangelist. Not everybody is called to be a, a Bible teacher. We have different gifts. Um, some people are called to be a mason. Some people have a gift where they can be a lawyer, a doctor. Um, some people can uh, be a mechanic. Uh, in other words, you, you've got to function within society and use your Christian influence. You don't withdraw from society and just concentrate only on your own spiritual life. That is very selfish, very mean. And quite frankly, if salt is needed, it is needed where corruption is. If light is needed, it's needed where darkness is. And by removing the light and the salt, uh, we just let uh, society di disintegrates. Two more questions that have come in via WhatsApp. Do you encourage Christians to join a political party? Well, I don't know. Uh, I am not, and I don't think it's feasible for a third party with only Christians to survive in any country, whether here or overseas. Again, if you feel that you can make a valuable co contribution to your country, and you intend to go in to try to deal with issues that need to be dealt with, whether social, spiritual, moral, economic, and you really are concerned about your fellow man. If you feel that the way of accomplishing change and transformation in your country is political involvement, I have no problems in a believer joining a political party if they so choose to do so. Again, I repeat, 
these are issues that are a matter of conscience. For me, I don't have a problem with it. But as a pastor, I would not get involved because that's not my calling. But if I were not a pastor and I was um, any other profession and I felt that I could make more contribution by getting involved politically, I personally would have no qualms as a Christian doing, doing so. Do you encourage Christians to be involved in lobbying or protesting? It depends. Uh, if we were going to, suppose um, Antigua government was about to legalize abortion and and they were going to use taxpayers' money uh, to facilitate abortion, um, you can go to lobbying if there's some way that you can influence uh, government by getting somebody who is in contact with the uh, the politician who is maybe the Ministry of Health, maybe a no person. Nothing wrong with lobbying, but it may come to the point where you might do civil unrest. You have to might maybe the process or have a sitting. That is all part of our democracy. That's all part of what our rights as a citizen within a democracy. And a Christian has as many as many rights as anybody else. So if he feels of his conscience that this is going to help. Uh, he has a legitimate right to express himself. But a democracy might give you rights that the Bible doesn't give you as a Christian. So does the Bible give a Christian the legitimate right to be involved in civil unrest? There is no one verse in the Scripture that you can point to that this should be done. But clearly, when you look in the case of um, the apostles saying, you know, we're not going to follow what you're doing. We're going to obey the goat in the streets and the preach. Same thing with Daniel. Uh, you know, you can tell me not to pray, but I'm going to my home and I'm going to open the window. I want the whole world to see. Clearly, uh, that is a form of public protest, right? But coming back to the New Testament, there's no reference in the New Testament where the believers um, um, picketed uh, again, but that was not a right that they had in, under a totalitarian regime. We alone live in a democracy that we have those kind of rights. Paul exercised his rights as a citizen, even though it was a pagan, corrupt government of, of Caesar. He still used the government and so on, his rights. So I see nothing wrong. I think we can't, because the Bible doesn't speak uh, specifically to a particular matter. This is one of the what we call the gray areas, mm -hmm. right? We have to use our rights within a uh, within a democracy. Um, um, we would have a it, take the matter of uh, the labor the labor um, labor unions when they want increased wages and, and stuff like of that, and they're trying to get general improvement of the maybe something happened at a workplace where the toilets are not right or um, there's some. Infection where people are falling sick, and of course they have a right, even the Christian, to to protest to get the government to do something. So I, uh, while there's no specific verse, uh, it's a matter of conscience, and it's one of those gray areas where Christian shall exercise his Christian liberty. Do you have any guidelines that you would share with us that would keep us in line with biblical principles as we're protesting? I want to share um, with the audience um, six principles that uh, Canon John John uh, J John. No, not he's not a canon in the Catholic Church. That's <laughs> his first name. Okay, uh, he has offered six very very, uh, in my judgment, wise principles when it comes to this matter of protest, etc. Let me just share them with the audience for just a moment. First one he said is that we should protest on behalf of others rather than ourselves. Our duty to love our neighbor may involve us protesting for them. 
Now, I would not be so exclusive that I would not protest for myself if I felt I was unjustly being treated and I need some kind of um, judicial help and I mm-hmm. wasn't getting it. Uh, by the way, I must say to the audience, use the ombudsman when you have a legal matter and you don't have any kind of legal representation. The ombudsman is there to help you with any issue that is of a legal nature that you really don't even have the wisdom to, and you don't want to go to a lawyer. I've done that on more than one occasion. Can you can you remind us what the ombudsman is? The ombudsman, to my knowledge, is just a person the government has designated to deal with issues that relate to you and the government, or if you feel you're unjustly treated in some way, and you don't have any legal recourse or you don't have the legal means, uh, you go in and state your case to the ombudsman. Sometimes she may be able to appoint a lawyer for you to help you. But one of the best things the government has ever done uh, for citizens who don't have means and the average person. But um, number two, all other means of influencing the governing powers should have been exhausted. Protest should always be the last resort. I agree with that. I really think that we should try uh, not to make public protests unnecessary to irritate the government. Uh, and if it's possible, try other means to get that done. Number three, we must be assured that our protests will do more good than harm. Many protests start out and it turns out into chaos. Sometimes it's violence. So you've got to be sure that the protesting is really going to help the situation rather than exacerbate it. And then number four, there must be a clearly defined and widely understood aim for our protests without a firm goal it's all too easy for protests to degenerate into heated expressions of anger and dislike. Again, what are we protesting? What are the parameters of the protest? What is this all about? What are we trying to achieve? I think we need clarity in this matter. Some people protest, they don't even know what they're protesting about. They just go to keep be a rabble rouse if we don't want that. Yeah. And then number five, the limits of any protest must be set beforehand. Christians can have nothing to do with words of hatred or even worse, acts of violence. I think that is clear. If we are going to protest, it's going to be peaceful. If we're going to put banners, this is the banners. But we be careful with the language that we use, and especially not to allow emotion to lead us to any form of violence or hatred. And then number six, any protest must have a reasonable chance of being successful. Turnout counts. If there is more press than protesters, those against whom we are protesting are likely to be comforted rather than challenged. And that's clear. Uh, you, you're protesting three turnout, but you've got 12 reporters. What's the point? So um, I think that is, I think these principles, while you can't go into the Bible and find them, I think these are principles coming from a wise Christian, and I think that these are very helpful to help people who are thinking of protesting. Pastor, we've got about 10 minutes left in the program, a topic that we haven't touched yet, but is that of separation of church and state, whether it's a government here in the Caribbean or wherever it is. Is that a biblical concept? Is it possible to have a government that is completely separated from the church? Well, I think not. Is it possible? I think that should be the norm. Okay. It's only the the state churches, like uh, Germany has got the state church, the Lutheran church. France has got his church. Scotland has got the Presbyterian church. Uh, a lot of Catholic countries, the Catholic country uh, churches, the, the, the church is part of the state. The Church of England. The, the, the head of the Church of England is a queen. Now imagine that for just a moment. Uh, but biblically, render the seeds of the things that are seeds of the things that are God. There's no way in the Bible 
that government ought to be controlling the church and dictating policy to the church. A lot of these state churches, the government actually supports the, the churches in terms of giving them funds and money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, who owns the money and who gives the money normally pulls the strings. And it eventually leads um, uh, churches to compromise. So I do believe that the government should be separate from the church. And I do not believe that the government has any right interfering in church affairs unless there is some clear violation of the a principle of law. Um, but ch- government has no right dictating to a church and controlling churches, etc., etc., except it's, it's a violation of the law. Western societies and governments as a whole are based on Judeo-Christian principles. And it seems as though, even, and it seems to be snowballing more and more quickly, but that there's modern secular activists that are attempting to remove any semblance of Christian principles or religious principles that are found in governmental framework. Is that possible to be done without completely destroying our civilization in the West as we know it? Yeah, this is the dilemma America has uh, at this current time. The, The British and the Europeans as well have gone further than the Americans have gone. And the, the whole the whole idea is, if you read the founding fathers of America or read American history, early history, you'll find that all of them, with very few exceptions, were men of faith. And they carried their faith into government. Uh, if we could have another program sometime, people who may doubt that, I can literally quote from a lot of the American founding fathers what vital role religion played uh, even some of your, I forgot, I think it was John Adams, who said that democracy, to the effect that democracy cannot survive except the people be a virtuous and a moral people and and uh, and, and have uh, faith, basically. So uh, somehow, the over the years, the politicians, especially on the left, has created the environment to to, to make the Americans believe that religion should be totally removed from politics. You will not find a founding father anywhere that had that remotest suggestion. As a matter of fact, this is the humor of it. Even before every congressional meeting, you have prayer. You have a um, you have a um, uh, a person who is assigned a, a religious man who is assigned to the president. Like so the chaplain. Uh, chaplain. Yeah. I mean, so just think about that for just a moment. I mean, it's totally ridiculous what they're, they're trying to suggest that you. Do you be- think that same ridiculous philosophy will filter down to the Caribbean if it hasn't already? Thankfully, we have been wiser uh, in terms of understanding the importance that religion plays within our countries. I think politicians re- recognize this as well, uh, and I don't feel that we're going to have the same kind of problem that you have in America. I think. To some extent, within the Caribbean, uh, the church it might not seem to have a voice, but collectively it does have a big voice. And I think politicians are prepared to listen to the church. Um, that has not. I don't know. As we become more secularized and more humanized um, in our society, and humanism takes over, atheism takes over, it could come to the point where there's a clash between government in the Caribbean and, and the state. But at this point in time, the government and the, yeah, government and the church. But I don't think we've reached that stage yet. And uh, I, I hope that our politicians are wise enough uh, to avoid going in that direction. I hope they learn what's happening in America. Um, and by the way, could I say this, Brother Nathan? A Christian must carry his Christianity everywhere he goes. 
I can't, can't, can't leave my religion in church on Sunday morning. That is not Christianity. I'm a steward, and I'm responsible to be salt where I am and light where I am. So if I'm a teacher, I can't leave my religion at home and become a teacher. I must use my Christian influence in that particular setting. If, I go, if, I'm, a, if I'm a lawyer, I can't leave my Christianity in, in the church and not bring Christian principles to bear against my practice of law. I can't, if I'm a doctor... I can't see that I can leave my principles of Christianity and they have no relevance to how I deal with my patient. It's it's ludicrous to even suggest that. But I find that that's where Christians need to stand up and speak out on these matters. If Wilberforce had done that, where would we be today? Right? Mm-hmm. Where would all the great uh, changes in, in, in the uh, prison and dealing with children and, and labor, child labor, what would have happened if those Christians had not spoken and didn't take a stand? If they left the Christianity at home. See? And what motivated all of these people, by the way, it was not the politics, it was their Christian principles that motivated them to bring about change, love of your neighbor, love of each other, etc. I know I've heard you say, both from the pulpit and here on the program, that real lasting change takes place from the heart when Jesus Christ transforms the heart and the life, and then it transforms society around that individual. If that's the case, then is it the government's role to legislate morality? I've often heard uh, governments say they they don't legislate morality, but I cannot think of a law that's not a moral, moral aspect to it. Thou shall not murder. No, no, I mean, even yeah. even take wages, uh, increasing wages that is mandated, there's a moral element to it because you're virtually saying that you need to spread the wealth uh, and develop the, the people and help them to improve. Uh, not j- Because when you improve a person and he, and he has more money, uh, He's able to improve his children's education, so it's benefiting the society. It's not just a. It's not just an economic policy is made. It has moral implications. When you uh, make laws, on, uh, for example, there are rules now that you can't go into certain government houses dressed a certain way. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, <laughs> the rules and regulations for government departments are sometimes more stringent than in churches. But again, that has moral implications. Because you're saying, I don't want a person going up there and see the immigration officer and they're dressed in the hot pants and they've got their brows uh, and their breasts are exposed and, you know, there's a temptation there that something may be done. So you, that's legislation as well. So to say that you can't legislate morality, uh, the fact that you say you cannot murder, what's that? That's morality. Yeah. To say you cannot steal, what is that? That's morality. So it is... When I hear it, uh, it's ironic when I hear it, and I almost smile in jest, uh, because I, I don't think those people really understand that I cannot think of a law where there's not a moral element involved. Real quickly, in closing, is it right for government to pressure other governments to stop persecuting Christians? And if so, on what basis? Oh, I, I wish uh, when the Christian civilizations were being destroyed in the Middle East by ISIS and the others, the tragedy of all that Christians that were there for hundreds of years, vast population was being wiped out. 
And one of the faults I have in relation to the Obama administration, I must say this, is that they did absolutely nothing to help the Christians. Here they were bringing all these uh, thousands of Muslims allowed to come into America, but not one Christian, even though he was suffering and being beheaded, were not even allowed to come to America. And I could not fathom how that happened. Thankfully, when there was a change in the administration, the thing had to be worse. What about from the perspective, though, that... Uh, should we also be defending Muslims who are being persecuted or should we just be standing up for Christians who are being persecuted? No, we must stand up for justice wherever it is, whether it be a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, we must stand up for justice. Justice will not be limited just to Christians or to Jewish people. Thank you for joining us this evening on the program. We appreciate your interaction and be sure that you join us next week, same time, same place, for another episode of That's Truth. And we will be discussing the topic of apparent contradictions in the Bible. Again, next week on That's Truth, we'll be discussing apparent contradictions in the Bible. So be thinking of any questions that you may have along those lines. And we look forward to interacting with you next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.